Uh, good morning, ladies. It's great to be back with you all in person again. Some of you know I was secretly hoping that we would be starting next week. I would get to do this over a podcast, but nevertheless, I'm thankful that we're able to gather again in the kind of fellowship that God intended. If you are tuning in via podcast, we're happy that you're able to join us today. And this week, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7. So this is the final part to the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been following along with us, we've had Alyssa and Jenna take us through the first two parts of this sermon in the last couple weeks. Let's dive into this passage. I'm going to be reading all of chapter 7, so please follow along with me. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? <clears throat> Sorry, thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you that it teaches us and it convicts us. It shows us areas of our heart that needs to change. We just pray now that through your word, uh, you would use it to open our eyes to our hearts, Father. Would we be humble before you and be willing to see what it is that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. So imagine with me a scenario where you're busy in the kitchen preparing dinner. Preoccupied with washing and chopping and peeling, you fail to notice that the candle providing you with a lovely aroma has lit your window curtain on fire. Before long, the whole curtain goes up in flames. Smelling the smoke and spotting the, flare, the fire ablaze, you start to panic. You realize that despite the growing flames and billowing smoke, your fire alarm is not going off. Acknowledging what a serious issue this is, you pull a chair over to examine the broken fire alarm, knowing the importance of fixing it. As you study it closely, the flames continue to engulf your house. You're dealing with a serious problem in this scenario, but it isn't your fire alarm. It's the fact that your house is burning down and with you in it. First, deal with the fact that your house is on fire. Then you'll have time later to focus on your fire alarm. Matthew 7 verses 1 to 11 is similarly trying to show us a bigger issue of something that is at stake. We'll be looking at these verses in three parts. Verses 1 to 5, the problem. Verses 6, the caveat. And verses 7 to 11, the solution. As Christians, we are called to spur one another on in love, to speak the truth to one another, to hold each other accountable to Christ-like living. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus states clearly, judge not. This is not a contradiction to other passages in the Bible that describe our responsibility to address the sin we see in each other's lives. Galatians 6 verse 1 teaches us that we are to restore in a spirit of gentleness those in the church who are caught in any transgression. When Jesus says judge not, he is addressing the type of judgment that seeks to bring condemnation rather than restoration. This is clearly not something we are to take lightly. Romans chapter 2 gives a stern corrective to the same issue. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Look also at the word Jesus uses in verse 5 of Matthew 7. He says, you hypocrite. The word hypocrite is only used in three other books of the Bible, a total of five times. Here in Matthew, it is repeated 13 times throughout the book, almost always in reference to the Pharisees or in reference to the sinful desire for man's praise versus God's. Jesus uses the word hypocrite over and over in chapter 23, paired with the phrase, woe to you, in his rebuke towards the Pharisees. It is a word that is used strongly. And here in chapter 7, it is a call to wake up and be intentional with what is going on in our own hearts. Let's look for a moment at what is being emphasized in these first five verses in Matthew. Verse 1 says that you be not judged. 
Verse 2, it will be measured to you. Verse 3, the log that is in your own eye. Verse 4, the log in your own eye. Verse 5, the log out of your own eye. It is so much easier for us to see and focus on the sin of everyone else around us, when in reality, there is a much bigger problem. We are being deceived by our own hearts and our own sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And looking back at Galatians 6, what follows the command to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness is a warning to keep watch on ourselves lest we also be tempted. We must be aware of the sin in our own hearts and lives. It is powerful, enslaving, and deadly when not dealt with. We must understand the underlying workings of sin. We are tempted, lured, and enticed by our own desires. Those desires give birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. As the well-known quote by John Owen says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So now that we know that the problem lies within our own hearts, what is the solution? Well, before we can get there, Verse 6 of Matthew 7 provides somewhat of a speed bump, slowing us down, likely in a bit of confusion. Let's take a moment to read it again. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's helpful to understand the cultural context in order to see what Jesus is trying to communicate in this analogy. He uses two similar pairings, dogs and what is holy, and pigs and pearls. In those days, pigs and dogs were seen as unclean, wild, and vicious. Both were capable of savage action against a person. In contrast to these two, we have what is holy and pearls, both things that are considered sacred. It is clear that there is a level of discernment that is being called for a warning regarding giving something that is considered sacred to those who will respond with vicious scorn and hardened contempt. But how does this tie into verses 1 to 5? One commentary was especially helpful in putting these pieces together. It said, So when taken together, verses 1 to 5 and verse 6 become something of a gospel analog to the proverb, Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. If genuine introspection does not occur, a disciple may blunder on the side of judgmental hypocrisy or naive gullibility. So what this is saying is that we not only need to guard ourselves against judgment that is pursuing condemnation, but we also need to be discerning when it comes to offering the right kind of judgment that is seeking restoration. This is a guiding principle for who we offer truth to. It is calling us to use biblical wisdom. Unfortunately, even with proper discernment of who we should provide this kind of judgment to, we are still unable to do so until we have dealt with the original problem in our own hearts. So how do we go about doing this? Let's read verses 7 to 11 again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Look at what's being emphasized here. It will be given. You will find. It will be opened. This is a firm promise that Jesus is making. If we diligently ask, seek, and knock, we will receive what it is that we need. But what are the good things that are promised to us referring to? Let's look at the context of this chapter. What is it that we need? What is the problem that we have that we're unable to fix on our own? We need the log taken out of our own eye. We need to be able to see the sin in our own hearts and lives and to overcome that sin, to cut it off, to put it to death. And how do we do that? The answer Jesus gives us here is prayer. But not just any kind of prayer. It's a persistent, continuous prayer that is grounded in a firm faith that God will provide what we need not only to see our sin, but to fight against it. When I was attending the University of Guelph, my friend and I were both looking for a part-time job. We saw an ad for a mass hiring at a call center. The pay was minimum, but the hours worked well with our class schedules, so we decided to give it a try. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever worked for a call center before, but I found out pretty quickly it was not something I excelled at. We were each assigned a cubicle with a phone, a list of numbers, and a script. Our instructions were simple. Read the script, and no matter what response you receive, keep moving on to the next part of the script. Persistence was the key to this job. No matter what the person on the other end of the call was saying, you were to keep going, to keep asking, and to keep them on the line. Our boss would stand behind us listening to our conversations to make sure we did just that. I lasted about a week. (laughs) There's something to be said, though, about the persistence of a telemarketer and their commitment to continual asking. God is the only one who is able to search our hearts and examine our minds. That is why David prayed to God, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. None of us are able to make ourselves pure or cleanse ourselves from our sin, but we can pray humbly, diligently, and in confident faith that our Father who is in heaven will give us eyes to see what needs to be removed and the strength and power to remove it. As R.C. Sproul said, prayer does change things, all kinds of things, but the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. The first 11 verses conclude with what is commonly referred to as the golden rule. Verse 12 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is not only the closing of our first section in chapter 7, but it actually acts as a summarizing statement to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. As we have seen throughout our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is continually calling us to a higher standard of righteousness. Think back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, 
where Jesus speaks of fulfilling the law and the prophets. What follows in the rest of his sermon are what are commonly referred to as kingdom ethics, the way in which kingdom citizens are to live and relate to one another. Verse 12 of Matthew 7 summarizes this in a single commandment. Treat others as you want to be treated. As we will see later on in Matthew, Jesus explains how all the law and the prophets depend on two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Here in chapter 7, Matthew is emphasizing the latter commandment in light of what Jesus is getting after in the Sermon on the Mount. The second part of our chapter, in verses 13 to 29, is the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus ends his sermon with a stern and weighty warning. Let's look at these verses in four parts, four warnings that Jesus gives us. In each of these sections, we see that tone of warning, as Jesus provides not only a description of what is right, but also a description of what is wrong, and the severe consequences that follow. Verses 13 and 14 show us two distinct gates and ways. Jesus begins by clearly stating, enter by the narrow gate. As Christians, this is something that is absolute. We must enter by the narrow gate. It is the only way that leads to life. The wide gate and the easy way that Jesus goes on to describe only has one outcome, destruction. He is telling us that the only way to the kingdom of heaven and eternal life is a way that is marked by difficulty. It is a way of trials, tribulation, and persecution. How are we to respond to this, knowing that the life we are being called to is guaranteed to bring hardship? James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We are to count our trials as joy and embrace them knowing it is for our good and ultimately God's glory. This way of life may seem impossible. And we are reminded later on in Matthew that for us, it is. But with God, it is possible. Our eyes cannot be set on the things of this world, on the circumstances that we are going through. But rather, we need to firmly set our gaze on Jesus, what he has endured for us on the cross, the hope that we have in him, and the purpose of the race we are running that does have a final destination. As we move on to verses 15 to 20, we see another warning that Jesus gives to those who are following the narrow way. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. He goes on to describe two different kinds of prophets. The right kind will bear good fruit, and the wrong kind will bear bad fruit. Jesus gives us a picture of healthy trees versus diseased trees. Only healthy trees can bear good fruit, and diseased trees can only bear bad fruit. Therefore, we can recognize false prophets by the fruit that they produce. It seems simple enough. If you know the kind of fruit you are looking for and have the discernment to identify bad fruit, but it actually happens more often than we may realize that those in the church and even ourselves get swept into wrong kinds of thinking by unbiblical teaching. 
Think of a Christian bookstore you may have visited. You would assume that the many books lining the shelves and the resources displayed on the walls would all be a great choice, helpful tools in our Christian lives. And yet there are so many Christian authors, knowingly or not, who have published countless ideas that are actually not in line with scripture and lead us away from the truth rather than towards it. Podcasts, sermons, articles, all of these must be approached with wisdom and discernment. We must read, study, and know what God's word says in order to be able to identify the good fruit from the bad. This is an important application for our own lives as well. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about bearing and producing fruit multiple times. He links repentance to bearing fruit, as well as hearing and believing the gospel. Later on, he plainly says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those producing its fruit. We must be diligent to examine our hearts in light of God's word and the fruit we are producing in our lives. Not only does Jesus want to warn us about false prophets, but he also wants to warn us about false followers in verses 21 to 23. This is our third warning and possibly the most startling of the four. Look at the beginning of verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a heavy truth and one that should cause us to sit up and take note of what comes next. Jesus says the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of his Father who is in heaven. How can there be those who are turned away who prophesied in Jesus' name, cast out demons in his name, and did many mighty works in his name? It is because ultimately they were not doing the will of God. So what is God's will, and how can we be actively aligned with it? At the end of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Then he leaves them with a final command, to go and make disciples of all nations. We know that it is God's will that the gospel be proclaimed throughout the earth, so that more people would come to know God and turn to him in repentance. Not only that, but that the body of the church would be continually growing and maturing, becoming more like Christ. That's why our motto here at MABC is becoming more like Christ, leading more to Christ. The Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our lives should be about the work of God's kingdom, things that will matter eternally. The body of the church, our sanctification, the proclamation of the gospel. Are we busy with work for God's kingdom? Are we doing life alongside our brothers and sisters? encouraging one another, serving together in the church in order to build up the body, getting to know one another in deep and genuine ways so that we might be able to hold each other accountable. Are we actively pursuing our own growth in holiness? What does our time in prayer and in God's word look like? Does it reflect the desire of someone who is earnestly seeking to know God more, to renew their mind in his truth, to see their own sin and areas of their heart that need to be changed. What is our heart like towards unbelievers? Is it broken over the lost and the sin we see in the world around us? Do we long to share the gospel with those who are blind to the truth? Or do we look down on them, judging them for their ignorance and their sin, the lifestyles that they have chosen? As we examine our own lives and the things that we fill our time with, 
we must remember that it is not only about our outward actions. The example Jesus gives in verses 21 to 23 are of people who were busy doing things in Jesus' name. But as Matthew has already shown us in the chapters before, through the example of the Pharisees, our actions must be in line with a right heart posture. As one commentator put it, doing the Father's will isn't just an external thing. The Pharisees looked clean on the outside, but they were filthy and lawless within. Jesus describes a kind of righteousness that flows from a pure heart and a sincere faith. That brings us to our fourth and final warning in verses 24 to 27. Most of us are familiar with the story of two builders. One man built his house upon the rock and the one who builds his house upon the sand. Inevitably, the one built on the rock stands firm while the one built upon the sand falls. There are many children's songs based on this story, highlighting the importance of building your house on the right kind of foundation. However, the key to doing this is often not emphasized. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. The warning here is not just some abstract idea that we need to have a firm foundation in Christ. Jesus warns us that we need to hear and know God's word, but ultimately, we need to actually do what it says. Recently, I've seen a lot of examples of what this looks like in everyday life. The situation goes something like this. I'm telling Gracie something she needs to do. It might be that it's time to clean up, or that she needs to focus more on eating at the table, or that she needs to share a toy with Ezra. Now, I know she can hear me, and more often than not, when I ask if she's heard me and if she's listening, she says yes. However, as most of you have probably experienced, the acknowledgement of hearing and the act of obedience, unfortunately, don't always come together. Our children can hear what we say and even tell us that they're listening, but that doesn't mean obedience is being displayed. They must choose to act in order to obey. It's not hard to think of examples of situations where people hear God's word over and over, and in some cases, even spend their lives teaching it, and yet they aren't actually living a life that's in alignment with it. There are only two options, and Jesus has shown this in each of these warnings. We are either with Jesus or we are not. Either we enter by the narrow gate or we don't. Either there's good fruit or there's not. Either we do God's will or we don't. There is no in-between. If we hear God's word, but we choose not to do what it says, then we are not following Jesus. The starting point is to look at how we're approaching God's word. Are we coming in humility, with hearts that desire to be changed, willing to see our sin and areas of our lives that God is convicting us? Are we committed to praying that God would use his Holy Spirit in us to grow and produce fruit in our lives? Are we reaching out to others in the church and being honest with areas we are struggling, asking them for their prayer and accountability? The only foundation we can firmly stand on is Christ and his words that will never pass away. We are by no means saved by our works, but by faith alone in what Christ has done for us on the cross. But if this is where our faith is planted, then we know that our faith will produce works. It will bring about action. 
And when we do truly build on this foundation, then when the trials and the persecution that we know will come and the false teachings we know are sure to arise, blow and beat against us, we will continue to stand. And when the day of judgment comes and those who are revealed as false followers are turned away, we will not be among them. We can confidently follow, knowing that Jesus holds all authority, and this is true of his words and his teachings. The last two verses of our chapter, 28 and 29, show us the weight of these words that Jesus has taught, not only in this chapter, but in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is establishing his authority through his teaching. It says the crowds were astonished and recognized a difference in his teaching versus that of the scribes. How much more should this cause us to take seriously what God is teaching us through his word and to lay aside all that hinders us from following it? May we be people who see first our own sin, who pray persistently for God to transform our hearts, who embrace the trials and the persecutions of the narrow way, who stand guard against anything other than truth, who do the will of God for his glory, and who display gospel-centered obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would hear it and that it would sink deep into our hearts, Father, and that we would um, continue to think about these truths, that we would be um, humble and open to seeing areas of our hearts and lives that you want to change, and that through your Holy Spirit, Father, you would give us uh, the power um, to become more like Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.